For in this, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this, eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let each man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you may not come together for judgment. And the remaining matters I shall arrange when I come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again just thank you for all that you've written here for us in your word. And I again ask, Lord, that you would speak to us, instruct us, and that our hearts would be, would be brought to you, God, and, and that we would yield to you in faith and in obedience. We thank you, God, for the body that you've placed us in. We thank you for the salvation of Christ that has been extended to us and which we have freely received. And God, I, I do pray for, for Stuart's um, Friends, family, John Cho's family, God, that you would comfort them, bless them, minister to them in their grief. We pray that, Lord, if you would be pleased to do so, you'd even answer their questions about what actually happened. We ask that his body would be recovered to that end. And God, we we thank you for the heart that he had to make Christ known and the integrity that he lived his life, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus, which the world will never understand and counts as foolishness. God, we pray that you would, would just minister and bless his precious family. We ask for the salvation of those on the island, that they would be brought to conviction and um, that their hearts would be stirred to, to con- ponder and to ask questions and to seek after you and that you would bring further witness um, of Christ to their island. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, in this section here in 1 Corinthians, particularly in verse 23, um, it's the section that we always read when we're having um, the Lord's Supper or communion. And it's, and it's easy to take it in isolation as just a passage on the Lord's Supper. And that would be a mistake. Paul is very concerned in this letter, if we've been seeing, that, that there would be a practical outliving of the message that Jesus Christ died for us. And so when Paul said back in the first and second chapters that he determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and they preached only Christ and Him crucified, that becomes the theme for this whole book And that it's not just a gospel message that we've been entrusted with to preach, but our lives are to be displaying the crucified Christ. And so now in this chapter, he's, he's very concerned here in verse 17 of, of what is happening when this church gathers together. And we need to understand at this time in the early church in the first century, um, when they gathered together on the first day of the week, they had a, a, a meal, a big meal. And in a church like Corinth where two-thirds of the city 
we know was slave, and probably at least that percentage of the church was also slave, they, many of the people didn't come with a lot of food. And so the, the burden for the meal was put on those who were not slaves and who had some of the financial resources sufficient to bring adequate food for the whole congregation. And it was a potluck where, where a few of the families were responsible to provide most of the food for the potluck. Um, we all know about potlucks and how great they are, and, and uh, Bernie Bible Church has wonderful potlucks. But even here in our church, it's just kind of people just kind of fall into a routine, and, and some po- folks bring salad. Shame on you. Other folks bring <laughs> other folks bring meat, and and it's pretty consistent who brings the salads and who brings the meat, and it's good. It works out. Um, in this church, it would have been. The free people bring the vast majority of the food, and those who are slaves are bringing much less with the food. So they, they would come together for a meal. It was actually called the agape meal, the love meal. And then at the end of the meal, they would honor, remember the Lord, honor the Lord with what we've come to call the Lord's Supper. But that was an element of the meal. And maybe because of what Paul's talking about here at Corinth and, and, and the problems that arose, the church over time separated those two. And so now we have potlucks and we have the Lord's Supper, but may they never mix. Um, they just don't seem to come together in our, in our understanding as the way we practice things today. So he starts out and he says, but in giving this instruction, what he's about to say I do not praise you. How would you like to get a letter like that? I do not praise you. Because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. The the actual Greek word for what we call the church is ekklesia. And it literally means to call out. Ekklesia or kaleo is the Greek word for to call, and the preposition ek is out of. So to call out of. And it, it speaks that we have been brought out of the world. But we haven't been brought out of the world to be isolated, but we've been brought out of the world to become a body, a fellowship. And the distinctive is the corporate identity of the body of Christ. We, we spend a lot of time, and, and rightly so, talking about the individual blessings that come from placing our faith in Christ. We don't spend probably enough time talking about the corporate identity of the church. It is a great privilege to have this kind of fellowship and identity. That as soon as you place your faith in the Lord Jesus, you become part of a body. You are no longer isolated as, as society and, and the community of the world, though they like to use those terms, there really is very little, if any, community. But we've been brought into an, a, a community that is unlike anything else the world knows. It's not based upon wealth. It's not based on position. It's not based on talent. It's not based on race. It is based upon faith in Jesus Christ. And so it, it, it cuts across all the other factions that have the potential to divide a society or a community. As Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, that, that the believer and the unbeliever have nothing in common. So what that means on the positive side is that believers have everything in common. That if you've placed your faith in, in Christ, there is no reason... For the things that divide the world to divide us. We are one in Christ. John 17 strongly um, speaks to that Jesus Christ died so that we would be made one with God and one with each other. Being called out and having the privilege to assemble is one of the greatest birthrights we have as the people of God. And so when Paul says, I cannot praise you when you come together, that's huge. 
That would be like saying to, to a man who finds his identity in providing, I cannot praise you because you're a lousy provider. Or for a woman who maybe finds her identity in being a mom, I cannot praise you in your role as mother. And you go, what's left? So when Paul says, I cannot praise you when you come together, and that is the core identity of the church, this is huge. So what's their problem? The problem is that when they come together, there are those people, presumably those who, who, who are bringing the majority of the food, who are saying, you know, we're kind of tired of all these brothers and sisters in Christ who are slaves showing up and eating more food than what they bring. And so the ones that were bringing the majority of the food were coming early so that they could eat, get full, and drink, even get drunk before the love feast even began. So there certainly wasn't being observed in love. Love considers others first. Love considers others more highly than self. And yet these selfish, self-indulgent Christians are coming to the church and eating, gorging themselves, and getting drunk so that others can't have what they brought. Pretty amazing. And you can see where Paul's going to go with this. How is that in the least bit reflective of Jesus who gave himself for us? So in the first part of this, verses 17 to 22, he speaks specifically to their gathering together. And then in verse 23, he's going to relate it, what they are doing to the Lord's Supper. And show how, how you are gathering together, how you are eating this meal, has nothing to do with what the Lord did in giving himself for us. So in your gathering together, first of all, it's not good. It says in verse 17, you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Now, he didn't go so far as to say you should just stay home, but he came pretty close to it. And sometimes you think there's some people who just maybe should just stay home because they aren't helping the body. They're tearing the body down. You are worse off for coming to church than if you'd stayed home. Then he says, one good thing is coming out of this. It's exposing the divisions among you. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. What divisions? Well, in this case, rich and poor. Those who can bring food and those who can't bring food. I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. One, if there's any one good thing that comes from divisions, I think what Paul's saying here is, it shows you who is fleshly, carnal, and who is spiritual. I wonder if some of those slave Christians who didn't have food to bring, if perhaps they never even complained. And they just showed up, and they were overlooked, and they didn't take offense. They just ate what was left. And they were proven to be approved. The opposite of being approved is disqualified. It's the same word that Paul uses over in, in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I preach to others, I myself should be disqualified. That's the negative. The positive is approved. So when there's divisions among you, it's usually pretty easy. Sometimes both parties are just in the flesh. Both parties are carnal. But oftentimes, when there's factions and divisions, it's pretty clear who's walking with the Lord and who isn't. Remember years ago, we had an elders conference with, um, there was a problem that we needed to, to be a part of helping to address. 
and, um, and it was pretty emotional. And, and when emotions run high, it's, it's, it's usually everybody starts to get in the flesh. But that didn't happen. And I can remember one fellow in particular, I couldn't have been more impressed with how he handled himself. And I called him up later. And I said, you know, I just want to tell you, I was blessed in how you dealt with that situation. Because it could have really, you could have really taken offense. And you could have become very, very angry. And you didn't. And I appreciate it. I was ministered to. Long time ago, we were having a drought, as we do most summers here in Texas. And um, my dad's property over here in Bernie, he had, a, had an extraordinarily high water bill. But he couldn't figure out where, the, there had to be a water leak, but he couldn't figure out where it was until all the grass burned off. And then he could tell where the water leak was. Because where the pipe was broken, it was green. And everywhere else, it was brown. And so we were out there digging and, and repairing the pipe. That's what divisions and factions can do. You can see who's dead, walking in death, and you can see who's walking in the life of Christ. So Paul says sometimes there's good that comes from divisions. Your coming together is not good. You're worse off for doing so, but it does expose who's approved among you and who's not. And then he says, therefore, when you meet together, it is not for the Lord's Supper. So that would be the culminating aspect of their gathering together, the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, and he's not talking about eating the Lord's Supper, he's talking about this meal in advance of it. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. And Rightly, the New American Standard here puts an exclamation point after the next word. What? You've got to be kidding me. I mean, it can't, can you imagine that, that these people come together and there are some people who are so selfish, so self-absorbed, that they think nothing of eating till they're about ready to vomit. And they're drunk, and others are going hungry. And this is church. This is what you've been called out to. This is what you've been called out from, Paul could have easily said. This is what the world is like. And this is what you're doing in the context of the church. And this is Christ's life being manifest among you? I don't think so, is what Paul's saying. And then you have the audacity after this to commemorate the Lord's death by taking of that unleavened bread and that juice. That's pretty amazing. That is the height of arrogance, audacity, and no wonder Paul's going to say coming up in the next paragraph, and examine yourself, and if you don't examine yourself, you drink judgment to yourself, and this is why, this is the reason, verse 30, some among you are weak and some are sick, and some of you are dead. Because your lifestyle, when you come together, is a mockery to Christ and what he has done for us. You are so self-focused. That is not what the church of God is about. That is not what Jesus Christ is about. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God? And shame those who have nothing. I heard, a, as I was just reading and studying for this, there was a, an illustration, I think it was in, in J. Vernon McGee's commentary, where he says, you know, we've all played that egg toss game. And, um, you know, where you start just standing just a couple of feet apart, whole lines of people, and you throw an egg to your partner, take a step back, throw an egg to your partner, and you just keep going further and further back. You know, we've all done it. A lot of fun. And, and um, as I said, I think it was McGee said that, that there were two, at this church function, there were two kids from a very, very poor family who were just watching this. And, and they can't believe what, they, what they're seeing. And so one of them walked over to the lady that was in charge of this and, and just said, when this is over, 
do you think we can have the leftover eggs? And that lady wisely just, just stopped right there on the spot, and she gave out prizes and awards at that point in the juncture so that no more eggs would be thrown. Didn't tell everybody else what she was doing, and then collected all the eggs that had yet to be broken and sent them home with those two kids. Now, she didn't embarrass those children. She didn't try to expose them, but she did try to minister to them. And, and, and when people are, are, are lacking, when there's weakness, when there's need, it's hard enough just to admit it. But then to, to, to despise them for it, to look down on them for it, what a shame. And Paul says, do you despise the church of God? Do you shame those who have nothing? I recall a good friend of mine in, in Bible college, um, he was a, a former Marine, and, um, but he didn't, um, even though I think the Marines were helping to pay for him to go to school, he didn't have any extra money at all. Great guy. And um, he, one time, I, I, you know, I'd already known him for almost the whole school year, and he was in my room and just sitting there talking to me, and, and, and he said, Charlie, do you think anybody notices that I only have two pair of pants? Well, I hadn't noticed. <laughs> and, you know, I'm just going, shame on me that I didn't even notice that my friend, my, one of my best friends, only has two pair of pants to his name. I didn't shame him, thankfully. And I'm not aware that anybody else did. Guys usually don't even notice that kind of thing, so it's been different if he was a girl, I suppose. But um, I don't think anybody even noticed. But it's not something to humiliate somebody over. Church should not be the place you come to and get humiliated. It's the place we come and we get encouraged and built up and strengthened in our faith. And this leads him into talking about communion. And this is so important to me. I, again, I, you know, I, I, I just, it's, it's been so good for me to preach through 1 Corinthians because I'm getting more out of it than what I've taught it you know, year after year at his hill. And, and I trust, probably like, like most of us do, when I come to verse 23, for I receive from the Lord that which I delivered to you, I just go, just everything else just stops. I don't read it in its context. And I say, okay, now let's just zero in, drill down on what communion is about. That is a mistake. Paul's just been talking about in a, in a sense, in, our, in, in the way we would first approach things, he's talking about something that would seem to have nothing to do with communion. And see, because our tendency is to compartmentalize things. You know, and th this, this is this box, this is this box, this is another box, and, and, and never shall they mix. And Paul goes, can't do that. He says, what communion is about, what it represents, impacts every aspect of our lives. And if you don't realize that, then you're in real danger. Because when he's going to say, take the communion in a worthy manner, this is the worthy manner is how you're living your life apart from communion. Not what you're doing during the communion service, but what you're doing before the communion service, what you're doing after the communion service. What it, is your life reflecting in a worthy manner what the communion represents when you are taking it. That seems to be the point here. So he says, for I receive from the Lord. Now this is actually the first of two times Paul's going to use that phrase. He says in chapter 15, verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So two times in Corinthians, Paul says, let me tell you what Jesus Christ Himself told me. That kind of makes this pretty important, don't you think? Because see, Paul wasn't there in that upper room when, when, the, when Jesus had this last supper with His disciples. Paul wasn't there. But he's been given the inside scoop on this 
by Jesus himself. Jesus, you know, and, and so G, Paul had this personal encounter with Christ, and it seems to be more than the one that happened on the road to Damascus, but it seems that he had another one in the three years that he went down into Arabia, and during that time, the Lord Jesus, Paul would say, says, met with him again. And that must have been quite the experience. There's a lot of things that Jesus talked to him about, but I think, God, of all the things you would talk to Paul about, I wouldn't have put this big on the list. When you think about it, all the things that Jesus would have needed to talk to Paul about to prepare him for this apostolic ministry that he was going to have. And it would seem that top on Jesus' list of things to inform Paul about was that Last Supper, that communion. And he says, let me talk to you about this. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. Now, let me just stop. In the, not, the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed. What has that got to do with anything going? See, all the things that Jesus said, Paul is choosing his words carefully because he wants to relate it directly to what's happening in the Corinthian church. In the night in which he was betrayed. You selfish Corinthians who can only think about your food. Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, which is probably the hardest thing for a person to go through is betrayal. He was thinking about something other than himself. And you come together for your potlucks, for your communion, for your love feast, and you're only thinking about yourself. Something's wrong with that picture. In the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, thanks for what? For the privilege of giving himself as a sacrifice and offering for his enemies. And you won't even share your food with your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is big stuff. He had, he, when he had given thanks, he broke it. And as one writer says, why do you break bread? Literally, why do you take the bread and pull it apart into pieces so you can distribute it? Right? Breaking implies distribution. And so the idea is sharing. He broke bread so that he could share with others the result of that breaking. And you won't share your food. See, everything about communion, they are violating Outside of communion. And so this is why I say that we shouldn't just look at communion as an isolated thing. But what does it represent? What is it saying? And is my life living in a way that is reflective of what communion is saying? How do I respond to betrayal? How do I respond to being taken advantage of? Do I give thanks? at the opportunity to sacrifice myself on behalf of others? Or am I resentful? Keeping score. Wondering when they'll get their opportunity to sacrifice themselves. Or why am I the one that always has to be sacrificed? In the night in which he was betrayed, he wasn't keeping score, he wasn't thinking about himself. He was thankful, thankful for the opportunity to give himself for others. And he broke, not just bread, he gave himself broken for you and me. That it would be dispersed, his life dispersed to you and I. And then he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this. In remembrance of me. And again, it's not just about communion. Live your life in a way that is in remembrance of Christ. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. A covenant can only be established by the shedding of blood. And a covenant is for the good of others. You enter into a covenant with somebody, even if they are the ones, the other party can be the one that is totally obligated for the fulfillment of the covenant. The reason that you come into that covenant 
is for the good of the other person. It's permanent. It's never going to change. It is an expression of selfless commitment, selfless love. And again, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This particular covenant, the new covenant, brings us into fellowship with God and thereby into fellowship with everybody who's in fellowship with God. Once again, it speaks of body life. It speaks of community, of being a part of something that's bigger than ourselves. Broken body, broken bread, dispersed to everyone. Covenant, where we are all brought together as one Reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, and here's the, the kicker, the climax. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. And yet, you would have the audacity to live as though life is about you, taking offense so readily. I just listed some of the things that come to mind with this kind of pride. Anger, touchiness, quickness to judge others, easily taking offense, having to be right, Demandingness, unforgiveness, resentment, refusal to forgive. All of these things are an indication of pride, considering ourselves more highly than others. And in contrast to this, Jesus died. We're about to remember Christ's birth. We're in Christmas season. And as as the church for 2,000 years, we've done a pretty good job of remembering his birth. And there's nothing wrong with remembering his birth. But there is nothing in the Bible that tells us to remember his birth. We are told to remember his death. And to live our lives in such a way that the death of Christ is remembered. Not just remembering what he did for us but remembering what that means for how we live our lives as he lived his. Not for himself, we don't live for ourselves. Not taking thought to his own rights, dying to his own rights. Not counting other people's trespasses against them, but forgiving them even when they have not asked for forgiveness. We visit war memorials and military cemeteries, which is a good thing to do. I'm glad for the war memorials and military cemeteries. I've never been to Arlington National Cemetery. I would love to go. Why do we go? To remember those who died for us. It humbles us. All of those crosses, you've seen the pictures of them, even if you haven't been to the Arlington Cemetery. Amazing. All of those people who gave their lives for you and me. It humbles and it should inspire us. Because as they willingly sacrifice their lives for others, remembering them in their death should inspire us to selflessness, to duty, responsibility. It should turn us from that absolute commitment to self to giving our lives for others, even as others have given their lives to us. It reminds us that we will never be able to pay back what those men did for us. We will constantly be indebted. Payback is not possible. But we can live in a way that is worthy of the sacrifice that they made. 
It's the same thing with remembering Jesus' death. It should inspire us to selflessness, to a sense of duty, a sense of responsibility. It should humble us. And we ought also to recognize that the reason he died was to secure oneness. Oneness with God, oneness with each other. So I can't ever pay Jesus back for what he's done. But I can honor his death and honor him. I can remember him by seeking to preserve the unity that he secured through his death. And that's one of the main imperatives from the book of Ephesians. Maintain the unity. And when I'm living selfless, selfishly, thinking only of myself, indulging myself, I am not preserving the unity. In verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. When we um, commemorate the Lord's Supper, we will often say things like, if you do not belong to the Lord, we would ask you to refrain from taking of this meal. And that's valid, but that's not what he means when he says, take of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, as opposed to unworthy. I believe it was J. Vernon McGee, I'm sorry, Wearsby, Warren Wearsby, who said, Paul did not say that we had to be worthy to partake, but only that we should partake in a worthy manner. We'll never be worthy of what Jesus has done for us. And each time we take that little bit of juice and that little bit of bread, it ought to be a very, very sobering thing. But if we had to be worthy to take it, there is no one who would ever be worthy. But if we'd recognize just that fact, that I do not deserve what Jesus did for me, and we gratefully and humbly say, thank you, Jesus, for the life that you gave for me, then that honors the Lord, because we are remembering him. That should take place at the moment that we are observing the Lord's Supper. We ought to be taking that bit of bread and that bit of juice into our mouths saying, Jesus, thank you that you died for me, that you gave yourself for me. Lord Jesus, cleanse me of all unrighteousness. I confess my sins before you. And I ask you to cleanse me from all unrighteousness as you've said you would do as I confess my sins. And in doing so, we are commemorating the Lord and his death in a worthy way in the midst of that ordinance. But again, this is bigger than that. That is the least we should be doing. Paul's not saying you're messing up that moment of the Lord's Supper. He's saying you're messing up what the Lord's Supper means by how you're living outside of that moment, how you're living at the feast that takes place before the Lord's Supper. So I would, would say here, this is not just about the ordinance itself. It's about our lifestyle that remembers the death of Christ. Our time, our money, it's not our time. You know, I've heard somebody, I was reading one time, somebody said just the different things that we, let, that we tend to label as ours that are not. And time is not a possession of men. It's not. How can you own time? How can you possess time? It is a stewardship that is never a possession. Time is God's. 
but we can get so irritated when people presume upon our time. It's not our time. Our homes, our money, we have nothing that we have not received from the Lord. It's all His. Live in such a way that honors the death of Christ. Let each man examine himself. This doesn't say examine everybody else. Let each man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup as he has examined himself. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. This is one of those times when maybe Paul purposely had two things in mind. When he said, if he does not judge the body rightly. Is he talking about his own body? Each individual judging his own body? Or is he talking about the body of Christ? Very likely he meant both things. Earlier in chapter 11, he said the woman who has her head covered disgraces her head. Is he speaking of her head? Or is he speaking of her husband who is her head? Very likely he's talking about both. And so Paul's clever. And, and we can you know, say, well, it's just all one or all the other. I don't know if that's the best way to go. But I think there, it, would, it is wise to say here, judge the body rightly, meaning the body of Christ. Over in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, right after Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, to present your bodies to him a living and holy sacrifice. Right after that, verse 3, he says, I want every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. And then in the very next verse, he starts talking about the spiritual gifts that the body has. And all the second years and former second year students are nodding because they had to memorize Romans 12 for me. Think about that. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. But think so as to have sound judgment. In the very next verses, the spiritual gifts that everybody has. Judge the body rightly. So when we come together for fellowship, why are we here? Ever so often, it comes to our attention that somebody will come to church because they believe they have something for this church that this church needs. Judge the body rightly. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Think so as to have sound judgment. Every person in this body has a spiritual gift. And you have one gift. And everybody else has a gift. And we all need each other. Don't go to a church where you think they need me. You need them. Yeah, they do need you, but you need them to judge the body rightly. We have no business looking down on others within the body. We all need each other. It's not just words for me when I say, as I often have, I truly mean it, that I count it a privilege to be a part of this church. And I feel the least among you when I come. It is a great privilege. I feel the same about the staff that I'm privileged to work with at His Hill. I don't understand why God gives us such good people year in and year out. It is a privilege. And I thank the Lord deeply for them. And the same with the students that God brings. They're crazy and they're well, you know, all kinds of things, but I thank God. I look at them and I go, I was not where they were at their age. And all the, all the crazy, dumb things that they can do, um, I'm going, they are light years. And I know this, they are light years ahead of where I was at their age. It's a privilege, absolute privilege. Judge the body rightly, lest you be judged. For this reason, many of you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Paul means dead. 
I wonder how many of them knew that. <laughs> and this is insight that God gave Paul. It's certainly not where I want to be in his camp and say, oh, yeah, you know, I know why that person's sick. I know why that person died. Goodness. But Paul unabashedly says, some of you are sick right now. And it's because you've been living a life that in no way reflects what is true of Jesus Christ and his death. You are living a life that is all about you, and you are under the discipline of God. And there's others in the church, and they all most, you know, I don't know about that day, but you know, up until recently, most churches had a cemetery right next to them, right? <laughs> and you, you, he, Paul would have said, let's just go walking through the cemetery. And he says, you know when that guy died? And it's not because he messed up how he was taking that little bit of wafer and that little bit of juice. It was because he was living a life that was contradictory to Jesus Christ who gave himself for us and he was living life as though it was all about him. And God took him home. It's pretty bold stuff. And if he was doing it then, there is nothing in this context to indicate that God is not doing it today. That there are Christians who have so dishonored Jesus Christ in the way that they have lived, that they are sick and others have died because their life is unworthy of the one who gave himself, himself for them. We all sin. We all mess up. But when there is a Christian who lives as though life is totally about him, no thought ever to anyone else, his time, his money, his resources, and get out of the way, and you better not infringe upon him. You ought to get out of the way. Because God's discipline is coming. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. God's goodness to discipline us. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, this is his final thing. What's the bottom line? When you come together to eat, this is not coming together to eat the Lord's Supper. When you come together in your love feast, in your potlucks, and obviously it would involve every other aspect of life, wait for one another. Wait for one another. I teach an etiquette class every year at His Hill in the fall, and um, students really enjoy it. And, um, and then, then they never want to eat with me after that because I think I, you know, they're going to be embarrassed or something silly. But one of the things that I've told them in that etiquette class is women go first. So when you get up from your table to go eat, women go first. And the guys have embraced that, and the girls love it. When I was in Bible college, it was whenever a woman came to the table, you had to stand. Whenever a woman left the table, you had to stand. And so there were girls in the school that would go to a table where it was all guys, five guys sitting at a table, and the girl would be the sixth one. And throughout the meal, she would just have to get up because she forgot something. And so all the guys would have to get up. And she'd leave and come back, and all the guys would have to get up. And it was just like popcorn, up and down the whole time. And the girls just laughed about it. They thought it was wonderful. But I had this etiquette class, and I'm telling the guys, stand, you know, let the women go first when you go through the line to get your food. I never said to the girls, wait for the guys. They've given you the opportunity to go first. And so when you get back to your table, wait for the guys to come to your table. Wait for one another. I never said that to them. And I am so glad I didn't. never occurred to me to say that to them. But the girls have come up with that on their own. And so every meal at his hill, all the students at any given table will wait until everyone is there and then start their meal together. I've been to so many other torchbearer centers and that doesn't happen at any of them. And I can tell you, it makes it all the more refreshing to see that acknowledgement of one another, that honoring of one another, just to... What does it mean? I, have to, I, I wait a couple of minutes. My food gets a little colder, but that person's more important. And I will wait until we're all together and we will eat together. It shows honor. 
It gives dignity. It's love. Considering others more highly than yourself. If anyone's hungry, now, so you see, he's going to speak here to both the poor and the rich. If anyone's hungry, speaking of the rich, of the poor, I know you're hungry, Paul's saying. I've been hungry. Eat what you can at home. Eat something so you're not coming to church starving. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that you may not come together for judgment. So, if you've brought food, wait for everybody else. Don't eat it before they get there. And if you don't have any food to bring, do what you can to not come to church hungry. Everybody is considering the other more highly than himself. Really all comes down to love. One person said one time, you know who is loved by who gets sacrificed. And when we're sacrificing ourselves for others, it's because we love others. When we're expecting others to sacrifice themselves for us, it's because we love ourselves. And Paul's saying, Jesus gave himself for us. Remember that. In all that you do, wherever you go, remember, somebody died for you. Not just anybody. Jesus died for you. Remember his death. I'll close this in prayer. Lord, we can each get consumed with our rights, so easily take offense, insist that we be treated well, that we be respected and not dishonored, can become so indignant so quickly. Speaking of myself, Lord. And it is too easy to forget that Jesus died for us. I pray, God, that you would just sear this into our consciences. That we would not forget, not stray from what it means that in the night in which he was betrayed, he gave thanks and he broke bread for the distribution of others that he gave himself for us. We thank you that Jesus came into this world we're thankful that we can remember his birth. But we see here, God, that you want us to remember and proclaim, proclaim his death until he comes again. And I pray that we would do so with great joy. The privilege of having our lives reflect the one who is worthy of all. In Jesus' name, amen.